Welcome to Gateway Podcasts. We hope you enjoy the following recording from Gateway Church Doncaster in the United Kingdom. For more podcasts and information about Gateway Church, please visit our website, gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk. Thank you for listening. We've spent 21 weeks looking at the book of Acts, and this morning we're going to spend a 22nd week finishing it off. Now, we've seen an awful lot happen in the book of Acts. As we've looked through it and studied Luke's account, which spans several years, we've seen something which started with a small group of believers waiting in Jerusalem. We saw them taught by Christ about the kingdom and then empowered by the Holy Spirit. And as we've gone through the books, we've seen signs and wonders and miracles. And we've seen that even after Christ's ascension, they continued to follow the believers. We've seen healing, we've seen deliverance. We've also seen that on every occasion when they could gather a crowd... The early disciples took the opportunity to preach Jesus. And actually, they seem to be great crowd pullers. Outside the temple, a healing. And suddenly, there was a crowd. But where the gospel was proclaimed, we saw time and time again, it brought opposition and persecution. We saw the martyrdom of Stephen, in particular, brought great persecution, and it was that that propelled a lot of those early believers to leave Jerusalem and to move out into the surrounding areas. Through that, though, the gospel was spread throughout the province and into the surrounding areas. And in doing that, the gospel started to be spread outside of what had up to then been a predominantly Jewish audience into the Gentile population. And then we saw this miraculous conversion of Saul. There he was just travelling one day when he met face to face with Jesus. We saw the three missionary journeys that he undertook into into Asia. And then over the past few weeks, we've seen how he returned to Jerusalem and how he had to be rescued four times from the crowd and his trials before Felix and Festus and Agrippa and his difficult journey as he struggled to get to Rome. And when we last left him last week, he was in fact shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Does that ring a bell? Have you been reading the same book as I have? Yeah? So a lot has happened through these few years. Now, this church that started off 
as a group of 150 or so believers in Jerusalem just before Pentecost is suddenly spreading throughout the Roman Empire. But there's still one thing that's been promised in the book of Acts that hasn't happened. God has said to Paul that he will go to Rome. And it hasn't happened. But God's word is sure. So we know that it's going to. So the account continues. And I'm reading from Acts chapter 28 verse 11 onwards. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day, the south wind came up and on the following day, we reached Puteoli. There, we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them. And so, we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard we were coming, and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome... Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Three days later, he called together the leaders of the Jews. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My brothers, I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. But when the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. Not that I had any charge to bring against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, We have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of the brothers who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we wanted to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day, and came in an even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. From morning till evening, he explained and declared to them the kingdom of God and tried to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed amongst themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. 
Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see the last stage of Paul's journey to Rome. He sets sail with his guard and his companions and he goes via Syracuse in the south of Italy and then on up the coast towards Rome. And he lands at the seaport of Rome which was a little way down the coast. And it tells us somewhat ironically that the ship that he was sailing on had two figureheads on the bow. One was of Castor and one was of Pollux. Now, they are the names of two stars that make up part of the constellation that is known as Gemini, the twins. Okay? And Castor and Pollux were, in Roman mythology, twins. They were the twin sons of the god Zeus. Hence, that's why that constellation is known as Gemini, the twins. And they were believed to be the protector of people who set sail on the sea. So here we have something of an irony that Paul, who has travelled so much under the protection of Jehovah, of our sovereign God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, actually ends up travelling to Rome under the figurehead of two pagan protectors. And we've seen this irony before, because when he was in Jerusalem, it was a pagan Roman commander who saved him four times from the crowd who wanted to mob him. But Paul's encouragement doesn't come from these twins on the front of the boat. Actually, what we find he gets encouragement is when he arrives, he quickly finds that he has brothers in Christ. He first finds that he has brothers in Christ at the port, because it says the following day, when they reached Putoli, they found some brothers who invited them to spend a week with them. And then as they travelled up towards Rome, it says, the brothers had heard we were coming and travelled to meet us. At the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Paul is greatly encouraged to see them. The way it's written, it makes you think he looks upon them as members of his family. The family of God. Luke makes a point of telling us that Paul thanked God for them. He thanked God for this reception party. Such was the encouragement that he felt when he saw them there. Here, the picture paints of Luke paints of Paul is of a man who's travelled long 
and hard, faced numerous trials and obstacles on his route, who is physically and emotionally tired, and who then meets family. Paul had just spent three months on Malta following his shipwreck. And during that time, he'd been involved in ministry. It's clear how much he appreciated his companions during this period. In other epistles, he writes to the churches during this time when he's in Rome, and he mentions those who are there with him. We know already that Luke's been travelling with him and recording the details. We know as well that Aristarchus from Thessalonica was there with him. And from the opening of Philippians and Philemon, we know that Timothy also spent time with him while he was here in Rome. And as well, Paul took great encouragement in support that he received from the church in Philippi. And that seemed to help him a great deal. In Philippians 4 verse 10 it says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. He appreciated the concern of the church for his predicament. But just for the moment, even the sight of these brothers in Christ boost his courage for what lies ahead. So within a few days of getting to Rome, having recovered his strength, Paul starts to meet with the Jewish leaders. Now, it will surprise some people, but Rome has one of the oldest Jewish ghettos in the world. And even today, in the middle of that city, there's an area that is dominated by synagogues, by kosher butchers, and by signs in Hebrew. So here is Paul, under arrest in a house on the banks of the Tiber, right in the heart of this Jewish ghetto. He meets with them, and he makes it clear that he is innocent of any charge that has been brought against him by the Jews. That he has done nothing in any way to act against them. He says, my brothers... Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors. He's pointing out he's a Jew himself, one of them, a brother. He shares common ancestry with them. And then he goes on to explain that the only reason he appealed to Caesar was because despite having been declared innocent every time he came on trial whether it was before the Jewish Sanhedrin or the Roman authorities, the Jews in Jerusalem were intent on censoring what he could say. How would you feel if you were in Paul's position? Where having done nothing wrong, whether at work or amongst a group of friends, every time you opened your mouth on certain subjects, they shouted you down. They didn't want to hear. They told you, you can't say that. Or maybe they physically threatened you. 
I don't know about you, but a lot of people would start to develop a them and us attitude. The world is against me. They're always against me every time I open my mouth. But if Paul has started to feel that way, he doesn't let it show. He starts off by saying, my brothers, we have so much in common. He goes to great lengths to show he still considers himself to be one of them. And that it's only because of what he calls the hope of Israel that he's carrying on with this argument. Now, he's used this phrase before. This phrase, the hope of Israel, came up in his discussions before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, before Felix in chapter 24, and before Agrippa in chapter 26. His hope relates to the resurrection of the dead, and specifically to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What he's doing is he's designating Jesus as God's son, the Christ, for whom Israel has been waiting. And he's saying, I'm only in prison because of my faith in Jesus as the Messiah, because I am proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and because I proclaim that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He'd previously been accused of teaching things which were anti-temple and anti-law. He was accused of that falsely. And he obviously thought the news of that had got to Rome before him. Because he said to the Jews something, because they were quick to reassure him. They said, we haven't received any news from Judea, no one, none of the brothers who's come this way has reported anything you've said. No one has said anything bad about you. But we do want to hear what your views are because we know everywhere people are talking about this sect. Now the word sect there doesn't necessarily have negative connotations like it does today. They probably just are describing a group of people as they see it within Judaism who hold a particular line of teaching. Yet apparently everywhere they went people were speaking out against it. Why do you think that is? What is it that people then, and today, find so objectionable about the Christian faith? In their days, it made a new community in the ancient world that had a heart of compassion, that was restoring the generosity and the welfare aspects that the Jews had lost sight of. When you look at the examples in Acts, were people better off or worse after their encounters with Christ? What about the eunuch? Was he better off after the scriptures had been opened to him? And Lydia? And the jailer? And Dorcas? And Cornelius and his family? Do we pick up anything that says that any detriment has come to them? 
When you look at Barnabas and Peter and John and Paul and the other disciples, aren't they by most people's standards just good, honourable people? So what is so objectionable? What is it that makes people so anti-church today? Why do they have to use Christ's name as a swear word? But Jesus told us they would. In John 15, 25, he says, But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. But whatever, Paul doesn't react to the leaders. Instead, he meets with them, he spends time with them, explaining what he believes. He's persuasive, and he continues to try to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. And he takes them right back to the law and the prophets. Now, as you look back through Acts, Paul has been consistent in his argument throughout all his travels. If you look back in chapter 18 when he was at Corinth, he was explaining to people then that Jesus was the Christ. If you look at the time he was in Ephesus in chapter 20, he was declaring the need for repentance and for faith in God. God had testified. God had said that Paul would testify in Rome. He'd said that in chapter 23, and he does. Paul is mentioned as having a persuasive ministry. You can read about it in Antioch in chapter 13, in Thessalonica in chapter 17, in Corinth in chapter 18, in Ephesus in chapter 19, before Agrippa in chapter 26, and now here in Rome in chapter 28. Paul's consistency is shown throughout Acts. But there's someone else who's consistent throughout the book of Acts as well. And that's the Jews. And we see that again here. Their consistency in the way they respond to the gospel. And again, we see the divided responses that we have seen throughout Acts. And so Paul warns them. And he doesn't beat about the bush. He warns them really strongly about being hard-hearted. If you listen to this, he's telling them they are giving up their opportunity of salvation. He says to them, the Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your forefathers when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. And then he says, for this people's heart has become calloused. They've become hard-hearted. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn. And I would heal them 
And then he rubbed salt in the wound. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will listen. He's saying, if you won't listen to God, his salvation will go to the Gentiles instead. You Jews, you have lost your favoured status. You are God's chosen people. But because you won't listen to me, I'll speak to others now. Harsh words. Luke concludes his account with a summary of Paul's activities over the following two years. He talks about him as proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus. And that's what we need to keep doing. Proclaiming the kingdom and teaching about Jesus. And notice, it's two elements to it. Proclaiming the kingdom means declaring publicly things about the kingdom of God. Because that kingdom is with us. It's not here in all its fullness yet. But the kingdom of God is amongst us. And it is advancing. And we need to be declaring that. And we declare it when we pray for healing. We declare it when we see people delivered. And when we see signs and wonders and miracles. And we need to be teaching about Jesus. We need to be raising disciples who understand that Jesus is the centre. Did Paul take his appeal in front of Caesar? Was he released? Did he ever get to Spain as he'd once hoped? Well, by Acts, these questions are left open-ended. Other evidence suggests that Paul was released and that he continued to travel widely. Some people claim he had a fourth missionary journey, which included visiting Spain. What we do know is that the gospel has reached Rome, the centre of the Roman Empire, just as God had said it would. And then you've got this wonderful final verse. Boldly and without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus. If you look at the way that is actually constructed in the Greek, the final four words are, with all boldness, unhinderedly. Those last two words, boldness and without hindrance, they sum up what we have seen through the whole book of Acts. What we've seen is the boldness of men standing before those who hold their lives in their hands. We've seen the gospel spread as if nothing could hinder its progress. 
across the face of the world. With all boldness, unhinderedly. As I looked at this passage, I found myself left with some questions. When you look at where Paul got his encouragement, it was from meeting with other believers. It was great to hear Chris say something similar this morning. And it was great timing. Don't we often find that though? That people share things just when they fit in with what God's wanting to talk to us about. But where do you find your encouragement in life? Is it from the TV? Or the radio? Is it from listening to music? Is it from being built up by things that friends or work colleagues say about you? Do you even get it second hand by watching the God Channel? Or are you genuinely encouraged by the brothers? Scripture tells us time and time again we should be encouraging one another. Do a search on the words one another. Okay, and you'll get a long list. There's about 30 or 40 of them. I've just pulled out three. From 1 Thessalonians 5.11, it says, Therefore encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. In Hebrews 3.13, it says, But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In Hebrews 10.25, it says, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Where do you find your encouragement from? When you look upon how Paul met with the Jewish leaders, are you hardened or are you heartened? Are you hard-hearted towards certain people because they have been unresponsive to you or to the gospel? Is your heart hard Because you can't feel compassion or urgency. Or do you come to every opportunity to share your faith heartened? In 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes, This is good. And pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. We need to come to every opportunity to share our faith, heartened by what God has done in the past.
In the two years he was in Rome, Paul proclaimed the kingdom and taught about Jesus. Are you doing those? Are you doing both of them? Are you proclaiming to announce publicly or to indicate conspicuously or to make something plain? That's what proclaim means. Are you making the kingdom conspicuous in front of other people? Are you teaching about Jesus? The proclaiming is about saying, the kingdom is here. When I look upon those two final words of the book, boldly and unhinderedly, are you bold? Or do you give way to fear? Are you unhindered? What stops you from proclaiming the kingdom? We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Don't forget to visit gatewaychurchdoncaster.org.uk 